Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I chat to magnificent people over equally magnificent food. My guest today has always been close to the stars. He started in a rock band called Dare and decided to jack it all in for a life in academia, teaching particle physics and studying astronomy, as you do. But he couldn't stay out of the spotlight and came to prominence once more as presenter of hit BBC science shows like The Wonders of the Solar System and Stargazing Live. His name and voice have become so well known in the UK that University Challenge poses questions questions on him and he's voiced a character in Postman Pat. Oh, and he works at CERN, lectures at Manchester University and is fellow of the Royal Society. It is, of course, Professor Brian Cox. Yeah, I think I, what I was basically saying was I wouldn't consider moving to the moon until <laughs> until there are vineyards, I think is what I might point. Brian. Hello, Jay. How are you? You, you can hear me. How marvellous. How marvellous. Yeah. Now, listen, normally um, on Out to Lunch, we ask people for their dietary requirements and they come back and say, I don't eat dairy or I'm a fruitarian or whatever. Uh, it's fine. You know, we, we we cater for all sorts. You were very specific. You said, I am led by my wine choices. I like white burgundies. Well, we better, better deal with that. Now, you should have got a delivery. I think it came yesterday. I have had a delivery, yeah. Do you want to read the label or shall I? Yeah, can you see it? So it's a Santa Ban uh, Premier Cru uh, 2018 from Jean Claude Boissy. Yes, indeed. Uh, just so you don't feel too special, I've also got one. I mean, I'm, ah. I'm <laughs> no, the last thing I was going to do was let you do it. Now, it came from um, uh, Liberty Wines, which happens to be, I don't know if you know this, they're just around the corner from you. How did I not know that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> David there, um, who runs it, and, and I had, had dealt with, with each other on something else, and I said, would you mind? And he went, oh, of course. So the, the notes that we have describe this wine as a kind of combination of Puligny and Chastenay in a glass. So I definitely know that your food is heading your way. Between you and I is a lovely Spanish restaurant called Boqueria, which mm. is on Acre Lane. And so they have already delivered to me and are now just in Brixton and they're now working their way towards you. Yeah. Um, have you had a sip? Well, that's just perfect right up my street. Well, marvellous. For your starter, I'll tell you the starter first, then we'll move wow. on to the main. You should have Padron peppers, but of course, King Prawn croquettes. And I have uh, the equivalent, which is a chicken and ham croquetta. This is tremendous. <laughs> Food-wise, before I, I circle back on you, you just did an episode well, close to when we're talking of Infinite Monkey Cage mm. about the science of food, of food and cooking yeah. with Harold McGee yeah. and some uh, charlatan uh, pretending to be a food critic called Grace Day. <laughs> um, and you said that you, you rather love a meat probe. I'm just curious. I just want to test your knowledge. What temperature internally do you want to get to in a piece of – Beef I, or lamb to get to medium rare. Following McGee, mm. I uh, let it go to about 56 and then let it rest oh, for a minute, and, and a few minutes. And so it goes a little yeah. bit higher probably. But I cook it to 56. 56 is exactly where it's meant to be for medium rare. So yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. You, 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 get a, you get a salute from me. <laughs> Last year, I was in France. I was obviously, if I ever drive through France, I stop in... Um, Bone or Merceau or somewhere like that, because why wouldn't sure. you? And I went in this little shop in Merceau, and it was one of those wonderful local wine shops. And I just said to him, the the, the old guy there, and I said, look, I'm in your hands. I, I love Merceau. Just give me a selection of wines from the village. 
And so he sussed me out for a bit and worked out how much I wanted to spend and, and gave me some wine. <laughs> did, he, did he look at you and go, he's he's an internationally renowned no, physicist he really didn't with a TV that. career? He, he absolutely <laughs> neither knew nor cared who I was because he was a wine dealer in Merso, right? So he just didn't care. <laughs> right. and, uh, but at the end, I said to him, do you um, decant them? And he said, yes, I, I, you should decant the white burgundies, right? He said, uh, he said you, should, you should open them at breakfast if you're going to have them at dinner. So that was interesting. And I said, what, what temperature should I serve at? And I said, because I've got my temperature. I usually put them about, about nine degrees in my fridge. And he said, what? Nine is for water. He <laughs> <Just> shouted <laughs> it at me. Nine is for water. And so I said, what temperature should I do it at? And he said, 11. So he was, li- he was livid that, that I would... <laughs> You know, drink this wine at nine degrees. He thought it should be at well, eleven. It should be at eleven. But he said, "I loved it when he said nine is for water." Just this dismissive, absolutely dismissed me out of hand. He almost threw me out of the shop. What was it about being a pop star that attracted? I started going to gigs. I just thought, I want to do that. I think I must have been fourteen. Uh, and um, I mean, we'd had a. A little band before that, but as I said, I was just into geeky electronic music and craft work and things like that. It does sound like it all happened very, very easily and very quickly. You invent all these reasons, I think, afterwards why you managed to get somewhere that was reasonably successful. But I think my whole career in everything, right, in, in music and, and physics and television, there's been a tremendous amount of luck all the way through. And, and so it, the luck in terms of getting into a professional band, what was the keyboard player from Thin Lizzy happened bizarrely to have bought a house in Oldham. And, and my dad had given him a demo tape. He remembered when he, when, when he was putting a band together and, and thought it was a guy up the road who looks reasonable and, and, and says he can play keyboards, uh, I'll invite him for an audition. And I managed to join the band. Did you listen to a lot of albums and then start picking things out yeah. on the keys? It's not simple. But also there was a component of the fact that I could work the technology. So I think he quite he was quite attracted to the fact that no matter how bad I was at playing at the time, I could at least turn it on and I could manage all those keyboards at the back of the, of the set, you know, so I could just stand there and twiddle the knobs. Were you very rock and roll? I mean, I've, one of the great rock and roll stories I've heard you tell is going to Disneyland straight off a plane and losing your car. Because... <laughs> yeah, we did that. We were a bit, we were rock and roll in the sense that, you know, apart from Darren, we were f- four other guys from Oldham, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. So we started recording at Hook End Manor, as it was then, which had been Jimmy Page's house which was amazing because it was in Henley and it was, wow. But then they said, we're going to finish it in LA. You know, I hadn't set foot out of the country. So suddenly you find yourself from Oldham transplanted in LA with a big record deal with A&M Records. And so there is going to be an element of rock and rollness because I challenge anybody who's 18 or 19 <laughs> to, to be <laughs> transplanted to California in the late 80s with essentially what feels like unlimited money. It wasn't, you know, but it felt like, you know, because I'd never earned a penny my life it wasn't like led zeppelin rock and roll you know because we didn't sure. <laughs> it was you didn't have your own jet no i'm gonna have one more mouthful of this tremendous artichoke mm. it works really well i have to pause for a minute and savor these oh, well, the wine it, works really well with the it really does plant. it's beautiful what happened was dare split up i'd always wanted to be an astronomer basically and, and all through the, the tours, I'd kind of set, still read a few physics books and things. So I, I mean, were you literally sitting on tour buses 
with books by whoever, you know, Fenneman and whatever. Yeah, reading about Einstein and things like that. And uh, so I came back and I immediately applied to Manchester University. And so I got in, but I think it was October when I applied or something. So I had a year to wait. I needed a job. My friend, who was a sound engineer, said, well, just I've got this band I've been working with and they're not going anywhere. It's really annoying, that dancey kind of stuff. So why don't you just do that? So I spent a, a year driving D-Ream up and down the motorway to gigs. And then D-Ream got a record deal. And Peter Cunner, who's still a really close friend of mine, said, um, we've got a TV slot, I think, on some late night TV show. So I just played the keyboards. So I accidentally joined the band. And in a sense, stayed in it all the way through, except that I was also at university. And so, so that's what I did with D-Ream. I just uh, appeared when I could. And then we got back together in 97 for the for the, the Blair election. You know, things can only get better. And that's the last time. So we did a Soft of the Pops that night. And that's that was a great way for me to end my time with Dewey. Given that you, 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 you've you raised the new Labour election victory in 97 yeah. and Blair's involvement in the use of the song, Things Can Only Get Better, how would you respond to the suggestion that you lied to us, you lying fuckers? Here we are in 2021, and I would argue they have not got better. I always joke about it, that it's physically inaccurate, because things get worse. It's called the second law of well, because of entropy. Yeah, so entropy always increases. So, you know, obviously Blair's star waned somewhat, and we could, you know, go into all those reasons. But it's important to remember that at the time, in 97, it was a period of tremendous optimism. And I think, I, I yes, think even John Major, I reckon, voted for Blair <laughs> in that election. <laughs> Did you ever meet Blair as a Many result times, of doing that? Um, at the time, he wasn't prime minister. Like when we were doing those things, things would get better. He would just leader of the opposition, wandering around doing rallies. And we did quite a lot of the rallies with, um, with New Labour. And, and so he was just there and he'd come in the dressing room and have a chat. And John Prescott was there and Mandelson and all those people who became household names. But they weren't, I mean... Yeah, you know, Blair was kind of a bit of a star then, but he wasn't prime minister. So there was no there was no lack of access or any security to speak of or any of that stuff. I got to know them quite well, the, quite a few of them, actually, just because we did a lot of the rallies. Did it feel like every time you went on stage to play that song at a rally that you were soundtracking an important moment? Yeah, yeah and it really was. You know, I, I think everyone of our generation remembers that speech, A New Day is Dawning, you know, that very famous speech, beautiful sunny day. Um, and it just felt like Britain had turned a corner. Shall I tell you what your main courses are? Hmm. Are you still ploughing through your artichoke flowers? It's all about making the wine work for me. The, the artichoke flowers work fantastically with it. So if your main course, you have pork cheeks and patatas bravas, hmm. you might want to pick around the bravas bit, which is the sauce, because that might Again, blunt the uh, burgundy. Whereas I have suckling pig with patatas bravas. Ah. Um, going back up right at the beginning, you go to university as a mature student, pretty much. I think you said you're 23. That's right, yeah. That's great, by the way. Oh, which bit are you on? Pork. Is it good? It's got this lovely smoky thing with it, just a light smokiness to it. At what point did you realise that you weren't merely indulging your own interest in physics, but that you were really, really good at it? I don't think anyone thinks I'm really, really good at this. 
Brian, you're professor of particle physics at the University of Manchester, and there's an awful lot of people who've been through the undergraduate course at the University of Manchester in physics who are not. Yeah, but they might not have wanted to. I mean, oh, right. it, no, but it's, the, the thing is, what I found was that I could understand it if I worked right. hard, and, um, and, and I wanted to understand it. So particularly with maths, I mean, um, I wasn't good at maths at school at all. Didn't you get D at D at A? Yeah, I mean, and there's loads of reasons. I mean, one thing, I'd already joined the band by that point, so I didn't think I was going to need it anyway. I was at a New Order gig the night before, the A-level, actually. So, you know, but, but broadly speaking, I wasn't very good at it. And what I found at university is that if I did some work and thought about it, I found a way of thinking about maths that allowed me to do it. But it, it was hard work. And some people are much more naturally able than I am at, at maths in particular. And if you're sufficiently interested and you find it interesting and fascinating, then you will find a way of thinking about it that suits you. When television came your way, I know there were, there were a whole bunch of episodes of Horizon before you did Wonders mm. of the Solar System. Did you hesitate or were you well up for it? The thing is, in some ways, I didn't think about it uh, so much, you know, because you don't think... I'd been interviewed a couple of times before that, mainly at CERN. Someone must have said, oh, he looks all right, and he does it, he can speak a bit, give him a little show. At the time, Horizon did that. It was tremendously important. It brought academics onto the screen and allowed you to learn. I've said that it's really important to learn your craft. Nobody's good at it initially. And so I just did it because I was asked, and they asked me to do a one on time, I think, and one on gravity, and I just really enjoyed it. And then, you're right, then this big decision came when Wonders of the Solar System was offered to me, which was a huge series. That required going to the university and saying, I've been offered this thing, it's going to take a year. So I, I really don't want to leave the university. I don't want to leave academia. Can I do it? And, and the university were magnificent. I, I wouldn't have chosen television over academia. I've done a fair bit of nonfiction or factual television in my time. It's an arduous process. I know your producer very, very well on Wonders of the Solar System. A friend of mine. Was that Danielle? Daniel Peck. Yeah, yeah. He's a fantastic producer. You flew around the world three times, pretty much. I mean, you were shot everywhere. It became almost a joke. Where's he going to pop up next for the next piece yeah, of camera? It, because Did you enjoy that element of it, or was it a, an effing nightmare? So the idea that you got this itinerary and it was all over the world, that was the, the reason the series worked, in a way, because... If you think about making a series about space, but it's television, you've got to point the camera at something. And at the time, graphics were tremendously expensive. They're cheaper now. So you couldn't make a, a series just full of graphics. So you made sandcastles in, in Namibia. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, there were mainly Danielle and people out thinking, well, what? how do we make this interesting for an audience? How do we find something that you can point a camera at? And how can you put across these ideas? It's, it's easy in a way with a solar system series, because you want to talk about volcanoes, you go to a volcano. I mean, we went to the volcano in the world, which is the lava lake in uh, northern Ethiopia. You know, it's just astonishing. And you can't go there now. It's one of the, you know, great privileges that there were other things going on at the time. The BBC were making a load of programmes because it was the 350th anniversary of the Royal Society. So they'd had this year of science. So ours was a bit no one really paid attention. We thought, we'll never get another one. It was like, you know, no one was going to pay these idiots again to go and make this series. So let's have a great time and, and just film what we want and do it the way that we want. And there it is. I was actually watching it, coincidentally, the other day because 
we've been doing a little archive review thing to put on the on the BBC. And in some ways, it looks more creative than the stuff that I've done since. <laughs> but it, part of it was that freedom. And, and the, to your question, it was because I didn't think it was a career. And I never have. Right. 11 years old. Yeah, I still don't. If someone says, what do you do? I say I'm a physicist at the University of Manchester and I do some teleprograms. But in that order. Right. You see, there's another way of looking at it, which is you have found a way to be a rock star by another means. I mean, in terms of live shows, I do these big live shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've actually the O2. Um, <laughs> well, exactly. So, aren't you? Which is 2021 as a, a, a space office. Yeah. So that, you're right. October. Those audiences, you know, 10,000 people or something, I never played to audiences that big. Even supporting Take That, I think we didn't, uh, you know, with Dream, I didn't, uh, and I supported Europe with Dare. And Jimmy Page, actually, with Dare, it was fantastic. It was some great tours. Um, but even then, so you're right. If there's a, a sense in your question, did, did I want to be a rock star? I never did. I've answered it twice now. I didn't when I joined a band. I was just interested in the tech. The thing about science is that I like talking about it because I like I like it. I love it, right? I, I love physics and astronomy. And uh, so it's, it is a wonderful privilege to be able to talk about it and and make a living out of it beyond the living you would make if you're just an academic. But if you said you choose, you don't make no more television or d- give no more lectures and do no more physics, I'd make no more television. There's, there's no doubt about that. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the promotion for the O2 event, you recently said, and by the way, we may actually all be holograms, and I'll just leave that there. This is- <laughs> you can't. You cannot leave that there. I refuse to allow that to just pass by. This is the thing I'm most interested in at the moment, um, and it's to do with black holes, actually. Stephen Hawking, a long time ago now, back in the 1980s, asked a question, which has been described as the most productive question in modern theoretical physics, and it's really simple. So you throw a book into a black hole. Is the information contained in the book lost forever from the universe? Does Do black holes destroy information? It's important because they evaporate, which again was Stephen Hawking's great contribution. So there's all this radiation, Hawking radiation that's there instead of the black hole. The question is, is the information still there in the radiation? And you might say, well, that's not particularly interesting. Who cares? The thing is, it's fundamental in physics that information is not destroyed. That's determinism, right? So we take it as fundamental that if we knew everything in your room now, we could measure the position and speed of every particle, everything that was in there. Then in principle, although not in practice, we could predict how that was going to change into the future and how it was back in the past. It's absolutely just a fundamental bedrock of physics. Deterministic information is not destroyed. 
And it looked for many years as if black holes destroyed information. And in the last couple of years, we, we seem to have been able to answer it to an extent. And the answer, the quick answer is they don't. Put it this way, the question was asked, what happens if you put one bit of information into a black hole? How does the black hole store it? How does it keep it? What happens to it? The answer is the black hole expands a bit, but it expands such that the surface area of the so-called event horizon around the black hole expands by a very important amount. It's called one square Planck unit. A Planck unit is the, the smallest distance that you can define sensibly in physics. So that's telling you the information is stored on the surface because there's, there's a complete correspondence between throwing information into the black hole and the surface area of the black hole. So it's like having a library and saying, how much information can you get in a library? How many books? And you would say, well, it's to do with the volume, isn't it? Obviously, I fill the library with books. But it's not. It's as if in nature, at the most fundamental level, you're only allowed to paper the outside of the library. So it's strongly suggestive that there isn't really an interior. You know, if you think about it, the most information you can get into a particular bit of space is, is proportional to the surface area of that bit of space and not the volume. And that seems to be true. Then it does imply that there's a description of the universe, which is a hologram, because that's what a hologram is. A hologram is a flat piece of film, but you can, all the information is there to reconstruct a three-dimensional thing. And you can walk around the three-dimensional thing and look at it, it's all there but it's actually encoded on a flat surface. And that seems to be the but, way the So you're saying is. we're living in a two-dimensional world, not a three-dimensional world. Yeah, I mean, you know, the world's four-dimensional, so it would be less than that. But, we could, but yes, it's, it's in one, less, Five, it's one less dimension. The bottom line is it looks like space and time are not fundamental things, that they emerge from a deeper description. So this piece of pork, which is excellent, it's, what is it? It's, it's made of atoms, right? And, and the atoms, the, the, the protons and things have been around since the Big Bang and they've been made in stars and so on, but they're atoms. And so there's nothing porky about the atoms, right? There's, there's a deeper description of this, which has got nothing to do with pork, right? Okay. Uh, and in the same way, it seems that space and time have a deeper description in which they don't exist. So, so with that thing, I mean, time particularly, that's the most evocative of things, this thing that passes and we get older as time goes on and the years pass by, that looks like it's coming from something else, um, which is just basically at the bottom level information. It's, it's often been said that in the 20th century, it looked like if there was a God, God was a mathematician because the laws of physics are mathematical. Now it's beginning to look like the laws of physics are information-based. So it's about information, quantum information, and how it works. And so God, if there's a God, God's a computer programmer. But that doesn't mean that we're living in a simulation. It's, got, it's no more nor less surprising than the statement that God is a mathematician. It might be very surprising, or it might not be surprising. You can't really infer anything other than that's what nature is. You you have declined to be drawn on the questions of, of godness or not. I'm a headbanging atheist for what it's worth. But you seem to feel that it's not something necessarily that you should have a view on, despite your involvement in physics. I think the great strength of free societies like ours is that there are lots of people who have different views. I have a platform of sorts, and I, I think it's an unnecessary debate it doesn't seem to get anywhere to me. 
we don't even know if the universe had a beginning in time, right? We know there was a big bang 13.8 billion years ago. It probably was an event in a pre-existing universe. And we don't know how long that universe existed for. It could be could be eternal. And I once gave a talk um, at a, a, a conference of Catholic bishops, and um, they asked me to give a talk on cosmology. And, and I said, yeah, okay. And at the end, I posed that question. Uh, the question, which is, um, what, what place for God in an eternal universe? I don't know. It's kind of interesting to me. Um, and they didn't know either. <laughs> Uh, listen, should we? Do you fancy some dessert? Yeah, I'm going to have one more mouthful of this because it's terrific. You it's really have a tata di Santiago. Oh, here it is. I've gone for I've gone for the cheesecake. I've got almond cake. It says on it. Yeah, tata Santiago. That's what I thought it was. This wine is terrific, by the way. Well, I'm delighted. Um, well, we've done a bit of physics, and there is one one thing. I mean, you said actually we've got to get off the planet, not just occasionally, not just one or two of us, lots of us, and that's going to require. Lots of developments. I'm kind of intrigued by what some weird, very rich men are doing. Yeah. Uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. You have said you would consider moving to the moon, but there aren't any vineyards. Yeah, I think I, what I was basically saying was I wouldn't consider moving to the moon until <laughs> until there are vineyards, I think. Is what I oh, OK. You know, th- there's no way in which we're going to replace this one. Uh, Jeff Bezos, I've had the, the pleasure of interviewing him, and he was really, he's an interesting guy, as you would expect, I suppose, um, and very easy to talk to. Um, Elon is a bit, I've also spoke to him, he's a bit more difficult to talk to. What Jeff Bezos said, the Earth is the best planet we know of anywhere in the universe. And that's almost by definition, because we evolved on it. So it's the perfect planet for us. Therefore, we need to protect it. That's why his rocket company is called Blue Origin, by the way, because it's referring to this beautiful blue planet we have. If you want to protect it, then resources are important. And so it's clear that we're damaging the planet in the search for more resources and the search for expansion. There are infinite resources out there um, in the sky. And even in the asteroid belt, there's a vast amount of resources. So it's not entirely ridiculous to come to the conclusion that it might be worth utilizing some of the resources that exist off the planet in order to save the planet. And that's basically his position. I find it hard to refute that logic. You talked about Bezos and Elon Musk as we head towards the end of our lunch together. Is that one of the the real perks of your job that you get to meet people? I've seen you light up when meeting, you know, astronauts—the ones who've actually oh, yeah. been to space. Is that the joy? Yeah, I mean, in particular, astronauts. You're right. Is that the literal definition of being a star fucker? <laughs> I think there's only one person I can remember meeting who I'd ever been completely starstruck by and couldn't speak, and it was Neil Armstrong. I really, and I've met quite a few, I've been so lucky, as you say, to meet quite a few Apollo astronauts and and, and become quite friendly with a couple of them. And they're all impressive individuals, and I worship them as a kid, you know, Mm. so they're all stars to me. But but Armstrong was something else for some reason, and I I shook his hand and I just couldn't say anything. I never met David Bowie, I, I think. I might have been like that with David Bowie. I don't know. But um, uh, when you meant to interview Neil Armstrong? No, no, no. I, I met him at a Royal Society event. It was just one of those oh. things where it was just hello, and it was just—it was one of those that I just couldn't say. And I shook his hand, and I was so astonished. I was holding his hand, and it's weird because I know that that Apollo was a big collective effort, and there, there were no, there's no special Apollo astronauts. 
they were all, you know, <laughs> the same, basically. And it was fairly random who got chosen to be the first person on the moon. But <laughs> I, would, I, you know, still I couldn't say anything. And, and I've met some remarkable people over the years. Well, I'm sure I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Brian, it's been fantastic. I'm hoping you've still got a bit left in your bottle. I really do. Um, uh, you can probably tell I'm still relatively coherent. Well, I don't know, do I? You're properly coherent. You're brilliantly coherent. All that really remains for me to say is, Professor Brian Cox, thank you very much for staying in for lunch for me or going out to lunch, whichever way around we say it. I hope this will not, you know, add to the entropy that is coming to us all when we reach our 50s. Oh, it will. It will. We, <laughs> we've it? expended energy doing this. We've increased. We, we've speeded up the demise of the universe in our own special way and little way. Well, I'm glad to be a part of something. <laughs> <laughs> I think I held my own when it comes to the wonders of the universe. Um, thank you to Brian for explaining everything so patiently. What a brilliant man. Uh, and Brian and I were well lubricated by a fine white burgundy from Liberty Wines. We paired that with fantastic Spanish food, thanks to the restaurant Boccaria, which has outposts in both Brixton and Battersea in South London. Um, and remember, do rate, comment and share to spread the word. It helps us to make more of these brilliant chats for your listening pleasure. Why not five stars? You know it makes sense. Um, do follow us wherever you get your podcasts so that new additions arrive with you the minute they come out of the oven. Out to Lunch is a something else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Gulliver Tickle and the mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Jemima Rathbone was assistant producer. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time it's the Band of Brothers, Homeland and Billions actor it's Damien Lewis. And all these young American lads arrived in England, you know, they'd been in the gym, they'd been working out and they were ready. You know, Spielberg and Hanks were launching this big thing and they wanted to know who the fucking Limey was that was going to play this hero who, who none of them had ever heard of. Mm -hmm.